there was a case where Dr. He in China did some genome edits on two children, on two babies. He made two CRISPR babies. That guy went to jail. Fast forward today, we're willing to take that risk on billions of people. Kevin McKernan worked at the Human Genome Project at MIT as manager of research and development. Today, he is the chief scientific officer and founder of Medicinal Genomics, and he is researching DNA contamination and the COVID-19 genetic vaccines. There are limits on how much DNA can be in a vaccine precisely because of the concern over DNA integration. What we do know is in both shots is there is residual DNA, and this DNA is either right above the regulatory limit or tenfold higher. How do the different mRNA vaccine components impact the body? What's really going on with the SB40 monkey virus promoter that's in them? Why should we be concerned about lipid nanoparticles and DNA open reading frames? How is synthetic mRNA fundamentally different from naturally occurring mRNA? This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelly. Kevin McKernan, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you, Jan. I appreciate you having me on to discuss this. It's, a, I think, a very important topic, and I'm glad you're giving it the coverage it's, it needs. Well, you have actually been doing some really remarkable work looking at what's actually in these COVID genetic vaccines. And uh, most recently, um, there's been a lot of chatter around SV40, this the simian virus or simian virus promoter. So why don't we jump in? Actually, I'm going to start with uh, with an AP fact check. This was so important that it warranted an AP fact check. AP's assessment is that it's false that is there is uh, simian virus SV40 in the in the vaccines. Public health officials and the lead researcher of a study cited in many of the social media posts say there's no monkey virus DNA in the inoculations approved by the government regulators. Some COVID-19 vaccines utilize DNA molecules derived from simian virus 40, but that's not the same as the virus itself, and the molecules aren't cancer-causing. That's it. What's your reaction? We did put a preprint out on, on this, which never said that the entire virus was present in the vaccines. We said that the promoter and the enhancer and, and um, the origin was in there, along with the poly A signal. So it seems as if the AP has erected a straw man argument where they are trying to debunk something that was never said. Um, and uh, and so that, that's that's my first comment. My, my second comment, uh, where they are trying to make claims that this is not cancer-causing, well, there are guidelines that are written by Keith Pettin at the FDA that govern how much DNA can be in a vaccine. And those are all based on DNA integration risks. Um, so the FDA has the answer for them. They merely need to go look at Keith Pettin's work. Um, there are limits on how much DNA can be in a vaccine precisely because of the, of the concern over DNA integration. Now, I will add that um, what the AP should probably look into here is the time frame in which Keith Pettin evaluated how much DNA could be in these vaccines didn't consider that the DNA could be in a lipid nanoparticle, which would make it a lot more effective at getting into the cell. It also didn't consider if the DNA had particular sequences that might get, might help it get to the nucleus of the cell. So there's two, there's two additional things going on that mean the DNA that's in these vaccines is more likely to get to the nucleus and integrate into the genome than than the information they had at hand and when they came to those regulations. They were assuming the DNA in the shots previously were host cell DNA. Like maybe you grew the vaccine in, in some type of uh, monkey kidney cell or something. Um, and as a result of this, there's background monkey DNA or background human DNA, whatever the host cell line is that they use. 
uh, we have something very different going on here. We have a, ver a, a well-known promoter that's used in gene therapy that's inside the vaccines that's getting injected through an LNP that makes it very effective at transfecting cells, and then it has a signal in there that drives that DNA to the nucleus. I don't think Keith Pettin had anticipated that when he came up with these 10 nanogram limits of DNA. So I'd say the verdict is still out as to whether or not they can be cancer causing, but it's the risk is certainly elevated from what the FDA's guidelines have been constructed off of. Well, and so I wanna bring it down a little bit and kind of simplify slightly what you said. Um, what I wanna talk about is just how uh, something like this could become cancer causing. And it's precisely the fact that it can actually get into the cells in the first place, right? So um, explain that process. Like why, what would make this cancer causing if indeed it were found to be? Because for example, right, we are seeing this higher incidence of the so-called turbo cancers and rare cancers appearing in people post, post the rollout of these genetic vaccines. There's a signal there that people are wondering about. So the, um, Bob Weinberg does a lot of work in this space. Uh, he's kind of written the book on viral integration into the genome causing cancer. Many tumors uh, will, will actually, if you survey their sequence, you'll find there's SV40 DNA sequence in there from, the, from SV40 viruses or, and also from other viruses. So viruses are known to oftentimes integrate to your genome and disrupt your genome, and which can lead to this genome instability that can then create a, a cell line that kind of grows out of control. Um, so the concern here is if this DNA integrates the genome, what, one portion of the SV40 sequence that's in there is an SV40 promoter. It's a very strong promoter, uh, which means it drives transcription wherever it lands in the genome. If this happens to drop itself in front of a proto-oncogene uh, and drives a lot of expression off of a gene that's known to, if you hyperexpress it, um, turn the cell cancerous, then we have a concern that that, that DNA is uh, in fact doing that. Um, so th there's two concerns. There's there's promoters in this vaccine from SV40, and there's an, a 72 base pair enhancer, which is uh, David Dean has shown is a very potent tool for moving DNA into the nucleus. So and they're right next to each other. So if this DNA moves into the nucleus and it drags a promoter with it, and that integrates in front of a gene, it can disrupt gene regulation, and potentially lead to um, to oncogenesis. Now, with that said. I don't think this is the only thing that might be causing this turbo cancer effect that people are seeing right now. The cancers are certainly going up right now, and that's a concern. Um, people have tried to pin this on maybe it was reduction in screening. However, the cancers that are being that we're seeing at greater frequency right now are not cancers that are traditionally screened for very heavily. So I don't think that's actually the answer. Um, but we do have a risk of potential DNA integration. We also have a risk that um, we've seen in the Pfizer trial that there's an induction of lymphocytopenia and neutropenia. Those are those are white blood cells. So patients after vaccination have lower white blood cells, which you need to clear out cells that are misbehaving, like cancer cells. And the third thing, there's been some some work in a few papers showing um, that the spike protein itself may get to the nucleus and disrupt regulation of p53 and BRCA1. BRCA1 people are probably familiar with because of breast cancer genes, but p53 is also another guardian of the genome, if you will. These are genes that clean up uh, genomes that have been broken or have integration events. So they are the things that go and clean up these broken cell lines. So if you have all three of those happening, you know, in potentially increased integration risks, white blood cell reduction, and, and spike protein inhibiting the genes that are meant to clean up this type of problem, the combination of those things certainly could make sense uh, for uh, and, and be tied to the, the rise in cancer that we're currently seeing.
Let's just briefly talk about the lipid nanoparticles because I understand they are also, aside from being, you know, incredibly good at getting through barriers that the body has set up to avoid things getting through, they're also quite toxic, as I understand. So could there be a role with, from the lipid nanoparticles? It's possible as well. So um, Mark Giordo does some very interesting work on looking at what transfection of the epithelium can do. And if you over if you overburden that process, you can create a lot of these leaky membranes, which can explain a lot of the adverse effects. Now, what's missing from both of the trials is no one really ran a vehicle control, which is what happens if you just transfect people with LNPs, these lipid nanoparticles, without any mRNA at all? What happens to, to people in that case? Uh, we don't know the answer to that. And so I think it's a very important point you're hitting on here because I think in a year from now, there'll be more of a scientific consensus that spike protein was a bad idea. Maybe we should switch this to a different protein, or maybe we should use this platform to hit RSV or flu. Uh, well, if we don't know the toxicity of the LMPs alone, that, that might be just as dangerous of approach. So we really do need to understand uh, if this transfection idea is a good idea um, to, to, to fend off a respiratory virus. I think many people have argued that this is a horrible idea to, to thwart off a respiratory virus because you're building immunity in the wrong compartment of the body. You really need immunity in the nasal mucosa and you're not gonna get very effective nasal mucosa immunity through injection and you take on all of these injection risks where you're sending LMPs through the entire body and it's not very targeted. Um, so we, we, do, we know from the biodistribution studies, some of these LMPs are getting to the ovaries. So that's a huge concern. If 1% of these LMPs get to the ovaries, there's 40 billion in each shot. We're getting down to like 400 million that go to the ovaries. Uh, now you're starting to really concern yourself if there's only 300,000 oocytes in each female, 400 million LMPs down there. These numbers start to worry you that, that what are we doing to the germline uh, in the future generation? Well, yeah, and I absolutely want to talk about that because this, obviously this is something that is, is very unknown at this time, except that it's been, I mean, we've, we've been told that that's impossible. I mean, basically we've been told that that's impossible, otherwise we wouldn't have rolled such a thing out. Is that, is that how you read it? Well, there's been a lot of things they told us were impossible that turned out not to be true. So um, I would want to see more biodistribution studies. Um, the biodistribution studies that they ran didn't really run it with the mRNA that, that that's being injected. They ran it with a, a mock mRNA known as a luciferase mRNA. That doesn't necessarily give you the best signal to detect this over long periods of time. Uh, they also ran those biodistribution studies over very short time windows. And of course, now we're seeing mRNA uh, in people's plasma 28 days later. We're seeing it in breast milk. Uh, we're seeing the spike protein in monocytes four months later. So the biodistribution studies really didn't track this long enough to know where it goes and for how long. And they also didn't look at how much of it was excreted. So when you do a biodistribution study, you, you, you put in X dose and you need to account for all of it. Like was half of it excreted through the urine and feces and the rest moving through the tissues? They, they didn't do that. They just looked at what they could find in a short period of time. So we don't have a full accountability of where all the molecules went. Let's talk about what we actually know concretely. And why don't maybe you explain for starters why you might have this SV, SV40 uh, promoter and enhancer in there in the first place. So it's a common tool used in the biotech industry to drive very aggressive expression of a gene. And in, in this case, Pfizer has it in front of a neomycin resistance gene, which drives resistance for neomycin. Uh, the reason they, they, they want that there is so that they can grow this plasmid in E. coli and let E. coli doubles every 30 minutes. So you can grow E. coli overnight and get gobs of this DNA. 
but you then have to purify it from E. coli to to then make RNA out of it. And there's there's some risk there that if you don't fully purify it from E. coli, you can leave behind what's known as uh, endotoxin or lipopolysaccharides, usually abbreviated as as LPS. So this, this is an additional risk that Pfizer took on. Uh, Moderna is doing a very similar thing, although they don't have SV40 in there. They are using E. coli to amplify their their plasmid DNA, and it comes with some of this risk. Uh, what we do know is in is in both shots is there is residual DNA, and this DNA is either right above the regulatory limit or tenfold higher. Uh, we've uh, our our data that we've seen has shown it to be tenfold higher than the FDA's uh, standards. The EMA has a different standard that's a ratio metric standard, looking at RNA to DNA ratios, and there it's even worse. The 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 actual um, outcome is there's probably more like a 17 to you know 80 fold gap there that 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 they're off in the regulations as best we can tell. Now, when we look into how Pfizer and Moderna, I should I should say only only Pfizer. I've only seen Pfizer's um, uh, uh, documentation on this, but when they are measuring this and giving data to the regulators, they're using two different tools to measure the RNA versus the DNA. And I think that's a mechanism for them to, to kind of cook the books here. You shouldn't do that. There's a tools like qPCR that can measure both DNA and RNA. But what they're doing instead is they're measuring the RNA with fluorescence, uh, like, like a qubit or a fluorometer of some sort, and they're measuring the DNA with qPCR. And what that does is it inf the, the, that inflates the amount of RNA they get and depresses the amount of DNA they get so that they can squeak through these regulatory requirements without anyone really understanding what's going on. So uh, we know there's DNA in there. We know there's SV40 components, not the entire virus. Um, it's 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 at or above the regulatory levels. And the, I think the really crushing thing here is Pfizer never disclosed the SV40 information to the EMA. They gave them a plasmid map of what the plasmid consisted of with all of the features labeled with the exception of the SV40 site. And I think they did that because they know the SV40 region is, is a very controversial based on its history in the vaccine field. The polio vaccines were contaminated with the full virus, not just these little components, but the full virus. Full virus is over 5,000 bases. The components we have are about 40, 466 bases of the virus, but they're arguably the most functional aspects of the virus's genome for, for replicating and for, um, for gene expression. So the fact that they hid that from the EMA is a concern, uh, that this is in there. Uh, we know from David Dean's work that it's used as a gene therapy tool. Uh, so it would clearly classify the residual DNA in the vaccines as, as under the gene therapy um, regulations that we have in many jurisdictions. Well, so this is a good opportunity to actually discuss the process of how these vaccines are made, because that will, you know, for some people that may have not sort of understood the entirety of, of what you just said, um, we're looking at DNA that is basically residual from the process of creating this synthetic RNA, right, that we're going to use in, in the, it's going to be injected in the body. So it's not something that's actually supposed to be there, but it's something that's, uh, that is part of the process of creating it. And can you kind of just explain? Okay, so a really good paper on this topic. It's only two pages. I highly recommend everyone read it. It's from Retzeth Levy and um, uh, Kutsoff, I think is the last name. Uh, uh, Josh Kutchoff. So it's in the BMJ. What they laid out is how this system scaled up. They Both companies started off what was known as a process one manufacturing. They used PCR to amplify the piece of DNA that they wanted to turn into RNA. All right. So once you have a piece of DNA, you can use an enzyme like RNA polymerase to turn DNA into RNA. And that's how they were making all the RNA for the clinical trials. 
Now to scale that that wouldn't scale very well. So what they did is they put that DNA into a plasmid, which is a circular piece of DNA that a coli can replicate for you. Instead of having to continually run PCR every week to to fill your pipeline with DNA, they just brew a coli. But in order to get it into a coli and get a coli to perform the PCR reaction for you, you have to put in this antibiotic resistance gene and, and grow the E. coli in the presence of antibiotics so that only the E. coli that has the DNA that you care to amplify is getting replicated. All right, this is known as a selection process where you use an antibiotic resistance gene in a plasmid to perform selection. So as a result, the piece of DNA now has grown from, from being 4,000 bases in the PCR process to something that's now twice as big. It's now around 8,000 bases in, in the actual vaccines, uh, 7,800 to be precise. Um, so that means there's a lot extra DNA in there. There's DNA from the SV40 uh, components, as we mentioned before. There's this antibiotic resistance gene. There's uh, a T7 promoter. Um, there's a couple other poly A signals in there. So it's uh, it's now a more complicated manufacturing process. However, they never ran the clinical trials on that material. Clinical trials were run on this PCR process, and then they switched to a new process after the clinical trials. There's a big bait and switch going on. Uh, and the reason it's really important for the users to understand uh, is that the, the process of E. coli amplifying this DNA brings in inherently more risk because you have to get the, that DNA out of E. coli, and the process of getting it out can lead to this DNA contamination, as we're seeing now. And it can also bring some of the endotoxin in from E. coli. Endotoxin is something that when you inject it, it causes anaphylaxis. We saw lots of people dropping on camera getting injected with these things, okay? So this should be a red flag for any regulator to see that you have a process change here that introduced endotoxin that was never in the trial, and now you have people taking these injections and fainting on TV. This ties like VARES to the manufacturing change very, very, very clearly. Now, they did study this on 252 patients using process one and process two, but as anyone who has a slight understanding of math, 252 isn't a lot of people compared to the 44,000 that are out there. So you're not gonna find an adverse event that occurs in less than one in 252 people uh, with such a small study. So um, this process one to process two is really important for people to understand because we can't let the, the, reg the regulators allow this in the future. They can't just change things on the fly like this to a new manufacturing process that has inherently more risk uh, without, uh, without running the whole trial again. So. Um, that's that's kind of how they're made. Once they have this DNA outside of the E. coli, hopefully they've cleaned out all the endotoxin. I'm suspect that they have. They then have to run an RNA polymerase on that DNA to make the vaccine material. And once they have all that RNA, there's still the DNA background they have to get rid of. The way they typically get rid of the DNA background is they put an enzyme in there known as a nuclease or a DNase, which chews up DNA. But the EMA had noted that when Pfizer gave them the results for this process, that there was an 815-fold variance in how effectively they were destroying that DNA, and they just looked at 10 vials. So if you expand that to, to you know thousands of vials and many different lots, the, the, the variations is likely to be larger than that. Now, one of, one of the lots in there, um, to kind of self-critique here, uh, Pfizer did asterisk saying they used a different DNA stock, and that's why it was at 815 nanograms per milligram. But there was, without that one asterisk, they even had a 211-fold variance amongst the other lots. So it's known that this step that they have of removing the DNA is, is, is variable. The EMA has actually cited them that they need to better clarify the, the protocol for this because it's, it's clearly a problem. 
Um, and I'm suspect that the methods that they're using to actually measure this and give the data to the EMA are cooking the books a little bit. They're using a different assay to measure the RNA than they are to measure the DNA. And that's pr purposely done to inflate the RNA values and depress the DNA values so that the EMA is handed a bunch of information that looks like everything's kosher. When if you go back and measure it the way we measured it, which was like 10 different ways, we did DNA sequencing, we did Oxford nanopore, we did Illumina, we did qPCR, RTQPCR, we used qubits, we used UV spec, we use an agile tape station when we tortured this thing. Uh, and it's, in fact, over the limit by all methods, with the exception of this fluorometer method. This fluorometer method exaggerates the material more than anything. And that's what they're using to exaggerate the RNA. And qPCR gives us the lowest answer of anything. And that's what they're, they're using to measure the DNA. So they're cherry picking the tools that they can use to cook the books and give it to a regulator who's probably not aware of all the methods that are involved. Um, and it's just going along with the numbers matching what the regulations say. But uh, it's important to know how it's made and how it's measured. And there are critiques on both ends of how they're making it and how they're measuring it is uh, something that needs to be more scrutinized. Well, and did you set out at the beginning to actually test these assays, these methods of measuring uh, and, and, and found this result? Because basically you're saying you tried all these different things and they happen to be using the one that, that shows you the best possible results for them, for the DNA, and the best possible results, which means low, sorry, for the RNA, and the best possible results for them, which would be low for the DNA. Was that part of your plan at well, the beginning? No, it wasn't my plan. It was more that this was such a radioactive topic that I couldn't leave any stone unturned. But when I first got data back from, from one method, um, it was really, really low. When we did Illumina sequencing, um, the number was very low. But we, were, we used a tool that does RNA sequencing, which doesn't really favor sequencing DNA. So we, we, got, a, we got a biased view of it that way. We have a long substack, which is really productive because there's kind of an ongoing peer review there. A lot of people critiqued that and said, you should go use something else like UV spec or a gel. So we did that. And then the numbers came off the chart really high. And we said, no, wait a minute. This is, we got to do more tools because these are too disparate. So then we started doing everything else. Um, and what we learned through that process is Pfizer's done everything else too. If you look through their data with the EMA, they have Illumina sequencing and they have RNA sequencing, but they didn't give that to the regulators because they probably saw what we saw which was that there's there's plasmids, you know, plasmid backbones in there. There's even some language that we've extracted from their, their documentation to the EMA that shows they verified the plasmid sequencing with RNA sequencing on Illumina. That means they did, they, they tried to sequence the vaccine's RNA and the plasmid showed up and they were able to verify the plasmid sequence from their RNA sequencing. That means they could see this contamination, but they didn't give that data to the EMA. They just mentioned they had done RNA sequencing. And when we go to measure how much RNA is there, we decided to use this other method. Um, so they, they have all these methods probably under wraps as well. And they're cherry picking which ones give them the regulatory answer they need. And how do they get rid of this endotoxin, which ends up in the, in the sort of brew that's creating these, this RNA? Well, that's a, it's a good question as to how they get rid of it because most plasma DNA preps have, when you're trying to isolate um, either RNA or DNA, this stuff tends to come through. It contaminates a lot of uh, DNA and RNA preparations. And so getting rid of it is actually not an easy task. Um, I would forward you probably to Jeffrey Payne, who's on Twitter, who documents these different methods. Um, it's important to know how they're purifying it away and how they're measuring it. What, the way that they're currently measuring it is not the most precise way to measure this. And I think that's intentional, all right? So the, the way that people have traditionally measured this is with a, hor a, a horseshoe crab blood assay. It's known as a LAL assay, L-A-L. 
um, right, they have to bleed horseshoe crabs to get a, their the, the a component in their blood actually hyper clots under the the presence of of this endotoxin. So they can measure the agglutination of of a horseshoe crab's blood uh, when there's endotoxin there, and that gives them some estimate of how much is there. Um, there's better ways to do this using mass spec that have been published, and that would be the more appropriate way to measure how much is in fact there. Um, there's a second issue at hand that Jeff Payne often brings up, which is that spike protein has all this published literature on exaggerating the the inflammation that comes from endotoxin. All right, so the regulations we have in place for this were probably correct for people who weren't being injected with spike protein. But now that we know that we're injecting people with a protein that exaggerates the problem, we probably have to revisit how much is actually allowable in, in an injectable. Um, so I, I would encourage people to look at his work. He, he's he's done the most. He's got a great substack, and he's dug into the endotoxin problem more than anybody. But as a as a researcher who's worked with plasmid perhaps my whole life, the number one concern I see when I see a, an injectable come through with plasmid DNA. I'm not as worried about the plasma DNA, despite all the things we discussed about, as I am about the endotoxin that often comes with it. The endotoxin that comes with it is uh, is much more of, a, of an immediate threat in that it can give you acute reactions uh, with, and that can turn chronic, but it, it's something that drives this type of anaphylaxis reaction that happens within 15 minutes. I don't think anything the DNA is doing is going to give you problems in 15 minutes, right? This is something that if it happens, it might it might give you, a, maybe, maybe cancer shows up in a rare number of people or it happens over a long period of time, but it's not something that would drive a massive reaction like that within 15 minutes. There's there's some evidence that it that it it drives an interferon response DNA when it's injected. There's some papers out there showing it's prothrombotic, but that's not something that's going to make you drop in front of a camera while you're being given this vaccine. The endotoxins fit that condition, and those are often co-contaminating um, uh, plasmid preparations. Absolutely fascinating, and I mean this—you uh, can kind of imagine this endotoxin. If there's, you know, variation in concentrations of it among batches, for example, because of the rushed production process, you can imagine that figuring into why some of these batches have been shown to be, you know, incredibly hot, so to speak, whereas others are kind of not at all. It would seem. Yes. I'm glad you brought that up because um, it's important for folks to know the limitations in our data is we, the vials that we looked at are not any of the vials described by Schmeling et al. So Schmeling et al. is a paper that showed that kind of lot disparity that was uh, probably published a month or two ago. Uh, and as best we can tell, the lots that we have been surveying are not particularly notorious for having high adverse events. So it's possible if we start surveying those we may either see more endotoxin or more DNA contamination or the wrong size LNPs. There, there's a host of things that need to be measured here um, to understand what could be going on there. But uh, to date, we have predominantly been sequencing lots that are um, sort of low on the, you know, how bad is my lot website. And just very briefly, you know, we've, of course, there's been a lot of talk. This was some of your you know, sort of original things you published was about this plasmid DNA that's that present. Now we know where it comes from. I think you've said that it, it's fragments of plasmids that you've seen, although there may still be, you know, actually full plasmids. But what is the significance of that, that the, the fragments versus the full plasmids? And what would it mean if there was full plasmid DNA? All right. So that's an important point. Um, most of what we're seeing today is in fact fragmented. In fact, yesterday we just put live um, some Oxford nanopore sequencing that we did on this. Um, so the plasmids are around 7,800 bases in size and they're usually circular. Uh, if there's, if the DNA is still circular, there's additional things that it could be doing. It could, it could find its way into a bacteria in your body, in which case you've now introduced an antibiotic resistance gene into a bacteria and that could be a whole nother mess that goes on. 
The, the second thing it can do is when they're still circular, some of your mammalian cells can replicate them as an episome, uh, which means that every time your cell divides, it happens to think that that piece of DNA is a chromosome and just copies it as well. And, and it reintroduces a plasmid every cell line thereafter. When they're fragmented, they're less likely to do that because they're less functional. You don't have complete open reading frames across all the genes because the things are broken up but they're more likely to integrate once they're fragmented. So there's a different risk when they're fragmented is that they can, they're, they're more prone to integrate, but they may not code for a full spike protein or for a full antibiotic resistance gene. They may only code for like a piece of it. Now, with that said, um, there are these things known as open reading frames. An open reading frame is, is a piece of DNA that has a start codon and a stop codon and codes a full gene, all right? Uh, and the Pfizer vaccine is quite unique in that it has two really large open reading frames, one that encodes a spike protein, and if you read the spike protein in reverse, it also has a full 1,252 amino acid open reading frame. That means that DNA, if it does integrate, is very likely to create open reading frames, even if it's fragmented, because there aren't any stop codons for half of the sequence that's actually in these vaccines. Um, so they're, they're, they can, in fact, create bizarre peptides, perhaps, if they integrate. But the integration event alone is often the problem. If they integrate into a particular gene, it can break that gene or, or create problems in that gene. We, we've seen this in BRCA1. BRCA1 happens to have an alu element integrated into it, one of its introns. This is a, a repetitive element that is, is viral in origin that replicates throughout our genome. And um, that's, there's all types of literature on, on how that integration event kind of plays and alters the way BRCA1 genetics um, uh, behaves in, 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 in cancer. So, so the integration risks, I think, are... Uh, our, our serious concern, however, we do not have evidence of their frequency today and if they're happening. This is what is, is lacking. We know the DNA is in there. We know it's in the LNPs. We know there's a nuclear localization signal, but we have no data to prove whether it is integrating or not integrating. More sequencing work needs to be done on patients who are screened to be positive, perhaps with PCR, that they actually have these DNA fragments floating around. And if we find patients that have that, they, their, their tissues should then be sequenced very deeply to see if any of that DNA has integrated into the genome. So, you know, I, I want to do the 30,000 foot view on here. So these open reading, the spike is an open reading frame, and then there's the reverse protein that uh, of that uh, is also an open reading frame. And what you're basically you're saying if that gets integrated somehow, you're basically producing, you can produce these crazy long proteins that who knows what they're going to do, and they're just going to kind of gum up the system. Is that the idea? Yeah, the, the concern is is that if a piece of DNA integrates into the into the human genome and it has, you know, you can integrate into a gene and break the human gene, and that's its own problem. But let's say you integrate into junk DNA. Um, does it matter? Well, it only matters if you actually have a promoter and an open reading frame there that can that can the genome will jump onto and make a protein out of, and then that could be a foreign protein, and you can create all types of autoimmunity this way, right? So we we don't want to have open reading frames excess open reading frames inside the vaccine. Um, this is something that um, their codon optimization that they performed in the warp speed program missed. They really should not have had, it's, it's actually quite amazing that they pulled off a codon optimization for the spike protein um, sequence and that the reverse direction was uh, also an open reading frame. That's very hard to do. Uh, you, what you wanna do in, in, in codon optimization is make sure that the latter thing never happens, that if you're gonna change the codons, you want to scan to make sure you didn't introduce new open reading frames on the other strand. Can I just jump in? Like, what has anyone looked at what this other protein, like the, the reverse, is actually doing? 
I, I have not. Uh, I've tried to blast it. I can't find a lot of information in, in NCBI and what the heck this thing is. Um, now, it, it doesn't have a COSAC consensus sequence on it, as best I can tell, but I'd encourage others to like double-check my work there. COSAC consensus sequence is a ribosomal binding site that kind of initiates the translation. But if for some reason this integrates next to a ribosomal binding site in the genome, then that 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 that's been satisfied and then the open reading frames um you have to be concerned about likewise if it integrates in the middle of a gene you introduce a new like open reading frame as maybe an uh, another exon or something um you don't necessarily need all the 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 five prime and three prime stuff of genes to have this it doesn't have to be a complete gene for there to be a problem during integration so we don't know what this does. Uh, I don't know why it's there. Uh, it's it's very bizarre. And if I did codon, I, first off, I wouldn't have done codon optimization because I'm of the of the opinion that the virus already did that for us. It was passaged through humans, so it figured out the right balance between how to how to replicate in the host and not kill the host. When you start changing the codons, you change all the biochemistry, and it can it can make a hell of a lot more protein inside of a patient, uh, and be in, in such that you make a lot more to uh, toxic spike protein inside of a in, inside of someone who's injected with these things. So, the virus figured out the right codons. Humans got involved and thought they were smarter and decided to optimize these things and didn't do a very good job because they introduce all types of artifacts like this when uh, when they do such a thing in a warp speed program. Did did I understand correctly that it's actually difficult to get the open frame in both directions to exist? Like, so you think it's by it's you think it's by chance? Well, it could be it could be extraordinarily lucky that they pulled it off this way. But in nature, when you look at op overlapping open reading frames like this, they're usually restricted to like a hundred amino acids at, at most. This is twelve hundred and fifty-two amino acids in the other direction. And the, and for you, those who don't know, the spike protein is twelve hundred and seventy-three. So, on one strand, we've got twelve hundred and seventy-three amino acids that are coded for. On the reverse strand, there's 1,252 with no stop codon. So any piece of that DNA that gets integrated for about half of the DNA that's in there, because the spike protein is about half the vector and that we found in the plasmid. Um, so half that material has no stop codons in it. So it's, it's very prone to create open reading frames if it gets integrated. I wasn't aware of this other protein that's obviously being created. Yeah, I should point you the appropriate citation there. Um, because someone did put a paper on this, I'm just forgetting the first author's name, but I think you might find it on James Lyons Weiler's uh, substack. I think he's the first person to really point it out to me. And I, I verified it once we got sequenced from the, the vaccine back that uh, a simple tool that does ORF finding will, will paint these two different ORFs on top of the vaccine. It's the There's a picture of it, I think, on, a, on, on my Twitter file and on, on substack. So... Um, yeah, it's it's an overlooked thing. I, I mean, a lot of people wrote it off thinking, well, if it makes single-stranded RNA, who cares? Because you don't have the other strand around once you have single-stranded RNA. But now we know we have double-stranded DNA in there. So the other strand is around in the injection. Uh, and uh, our most recent Oxford nanopore sequencing that we have are showing fragments of DNA. I mean, the average is like 214 bases in size, the library, but there are fragments in there that are, that are 3,500 bases long that we can find in the vaccine. And we're using a tool that preferentially sequences the small material. So we're not, we're not really sampling a lot of the big stuff with the tool we're using. So odds are there are going to be fragments in there that are larger than 3,500 bases. There may even be full-length plasmids if we sequence deep enough and and sequence more vials, um, but I mean that, that gets us back to your your previous point on the on the um, the vial heterogeneity here. Well, we have not been able to get DNA to reproducibly transform, uh, meaning you could take this material, put it into a coli, and get it to self-replicate in a coli. 
Uh, we've tried that once we got colonies, they didn't sequence validate, we repeated it and didn't see colonies. Uh, Dr. Bokals has tried doing this, he hasn't gotten colonies. So we're not seeing plasmids that replicate in E. coli coming out of the few vials that we've looked at, but we are seeing DNA molecules that are almost half the length of the plasmid in the vials, which means there's probably vials out there that have full length plasmid in them. We just haven't necessarily hit upon them yet. So um, this, uh, I think this open reading frame thing is an issue that needs to be thought through now that we know that there's double-stranded DNA in there. I, I think the reason it was dismissed early on is everyone said it doesn't matter. You're going to make, you're injecting single-stranded RNA. The other strand isn't around. But now we know it is. So on the one hand, you know, a, the, a big issue with having DNA is DNA um, persists, obviously. But when we're talking about RNA here, I think another thing that's frankly often overlooked is that the stuff in these uh, vaccines, genetic vaccines, isn't actually RNA. It's synth it's a synthetic product with a pseudouridine. Um, so, and that has implications because the whole purpose of it is to make that RNA not ephemeral, right? To make it something that lasts longer and can be used again and again. So um, pseudouridine and N, N1-methyl pseudouridine is, the, is slightly different than pseudouridine, but people sometimes use them interchangeably just as shorthand. But um, these do occur naturally, but they're at very low frequencies in RNA. They're like at one, less than 1% in most mammalian RNAs, and they're mostly in snow RNAs and tRNAs. What we have now is as an mRNA where 100% of the bases are changed out, not like 1% of them, but all of them. So there's about 800 of those pseudouridines inside the Pfizer vaccine. So that, that means that RNAs can't degrade it as quickly. So this is one of the reasons they used it, because they had a hard time injecting RNA and not having the immune system just tear it apart uh, and degrade the RNAs and have no effect. So they, they modified the RNA so that it would bypass those enzymes that typically clear it and destroy it so that they could get tons of spike protein production. Um, but then they turned around and said it disappears in 24 hours, even though they used these modifications to ensure that it doesn't. Um, so there's a double standard that's going on there that, that, doesn't, that doesn't resonate. And now we have the data that shows people can sequence this stuff out of people's plasma like 28 days later. Um, I think breast milk study as well shows it's getting through, it's getting through breast milk. Um, so that's, th there's a lot of biochemistry there um, that we don't know enough about, um, particularly the, the pathways we have inside the cell. Uh, there are all of these enzymes that will convert normal uracils into pseudouridine into N1-methyl pseudouridine. It's like a three-step pathway where it, it uh, you have a pus enzyme known as a pseudouridine synthase that changes uracil into pseudouridine. And then there's another enzyme that someone's found that methylates the pseudouridine into N1-methyl pseudouridine. We've not necessarily done a good job finding the enzymes that reverse this process. Uh, so if you inject a cell with that, say a thousand of these mRNAs, which is approximately what I think is going on in each LNP, um, you then end up with 800,000 N1-methyl pseudouridines that need to be recycled. And I don't know that we've really studied the pathway that recycles those. And what does it do to the pseudouridine synthase pathway when you flood a cell with you know, this much of, of a particular end product? Um, if you dig into the pseudouridine synthase knockouts that we see in mice, all types of havoc occurs if you take out these genes. So, I, you know, just tinkering around with this much uh, modified um, uracil is something that is, 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 we're in unknown territory there. So what that does. So um, the, the second issue that this brings up is when you change these mRNAs, the bases in them, the ribosomes read them a little differently because now you're using like a syllable. You're not you're not really using the exact codon that it's used to seeing. You're using a, some synonymous codon that that codes for the same thing but has a different 
has a different base in there. So sometimes the ribosomes kind of stutter on these things, and they make more translational errors when they're trying to read N1-methylpseudouridine. In particular, Fernandez et al. has some papers showing that it tends to read right through the stop codons. Stop codon ablation is what that's called. So when it's supposed to end making the gene, if that stop codon happens to have this N1-methylpseudouridine in it, it just skips over it, frame shifts, and keeps making more protein. Um, that's always been a concern of mine because the Western blots that Pfizer has showed, uh, which are these protein blots trying to demonstrate what their their mRNA makes, they're not the, the bands aren't the right size on those gels. They're longer than they should be, which means something's bigger. It's either glycosylated or it has more amino acids on it. And they've never showed the regulators what the amino acid product is coming off of their mRNAs. They've managed to just show them a codon table saying, well, we, we modified this, we codon optimized it, and you should just look at this codon table and believe us that it's probably making this protein. What they really should have done is done protein sequencing and proven what happens in mammalian cells when you actually express their mRNAs uh, in, in living tissue. Um, that's missing from all the data that we have public today. So we don't know the translational fidelity off of these uh, modified mRNAs and whether it is making mutated peptides or not. Uh, we do we do have some evidence from Bruce Patterson's lab where he's picking up mutated pe uh, spike proteins in vaccinated people, but not in long COVID patients. So um, I have a feeling that what Bruce has stumbled upon is evidence that they have translational fidelity issues using these modified nucleotides. There's so many places where we just don't have good information, right? We know there's, but, but we know there's a problem, <laughs> right? Yes. I mean, and there seems to be a reversal of burden of proof where everything's assumed to be safe uh, without evidence. And if you bring in evidence suggesting there might be some concern, it's, it's written off as, well, it's, it's not, you haven't put that through a, a, a clinical trial yet, you know? So um, there, there, there is some asymmetry here. Why did they pick the spike in the first place, do you think? You know, it's, it's a good question why they all zeroed in on the same sequence. That's been a little bit baffling. It's almost the identical, it's the identical amino acid sequence between Moderna and Pfizer from the start codon to the stop codon. I was always shocked by that. Now, they're using different DNA sequences to encode for that, that actual protein sequence, but uh, the actual protein sequence is the same. They both have these two proline changes and, and it's the same length. So, um, you know, I don't know if that was just, uh, you, know, you know, in hindsight, it's easy to criticize them saying, look, Spike looks like it has all these problems. And so you made a huge mistake. But um, what I think was perhaps a valid critique of their effort is that they never really knew how much you needed. Their dosage study looked at like three doses. And um, why are we injecting 40 trillion of these things into, into people? Why does the immune system need such a huge payload to build immune response? The whole point of your immune system in an inoculation in general is you give a very, very small amount of something and the immune system sees it, recognizes it, and gets ready to amplify a response to a small amount of that pathogen. But we're putting in truckloads of this material and we're doing it over and over and over again uh, and it's not working. Right, so th these are all signs that something's something's horribly wrong. There's 30 trillion cells in your in your body, right? So this is this is more. There's an RNA molecule, more than an RNA molecule for every single cell in your body. Um, why do you need that much to build an immune response to something? The second thing I'd add is the respiratory viruses we're dealing with here are are have been exaggerated in terms of their mortality. 
right? Is this even something that we should be considering for a respiratory pathogen like Omicron, right? And, and when you look at a lot of the excess mortality throughout the pandemic, there's a strong argument that a lot of it is 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 man-made. It's 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 changing treatment protocols willy-nilly, putting people on ventilators, ripping away antibiotics, using remdesivir. It's it's a host of this iatrogenic death that's going on that is probably accounting for the vast majority of the mortality that is concentrated mostly during the panic phase of the pandemic, after which Omicron comes in and we have what seems to be a common cold. So we're taking enormous risks right now on these vaccines where, where we don't understand all the long-term consequences to deal with something that has, as Johnny Anitas would say, something that's as, as like the flu. We would have never considered this for the flu. Uh, the final thing I'll add on that is many years ago, there, there was a case where Dr. He in China did some genome edits on two children, on two babies. He made two CRISPR babies. That guy went to jail, all right? Suddenly, fast forward today, we're willing to take that risk on billions of people. Uh, now, granted, CRISPR is a lot more effective, and doing it on germline is, is obviously going to affect every cell in the kid's body, and we're probably not going to get every cell in the kid's body when we when we inf inject them with one of these vaccines. But if we hit a stem cell or if we hit a germline cell with a vaccine and we get an integration event, it's effectively what that guy did and put him in jail. So the, 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 the ethical decay that's occurred in five years uh, in the biomedical community is absolutely astonishing. Uh, and I can only attribute that to the vast amount of money that's on the table for these vaccines. So how much evidence is there right now that there is this is getting into germlines? Because, of course, that is the huge, huge question here. Right. We, we don't we don't have any of that now. There's there's just the concern that the biodistribution studies demonstrated these could get there. Uh, and now it's just a numbers game and perhaps some sequencing work that needs to get done to look for this. Um, so I, I would encourage pathologists to look at the primers we put public on our website. Uh, you can order those from IDT or any other provider. If you need kits, we can perhaps help get people kits to do this. But to start looking through tissues of long vax patients. Uh, we could be looking at blood banks. We could be looking at semen banks, fertility clinics. We could be looking at monocytes, saliva. Um, all of these tissues in patients that have long vax, if you need to discern whether it's really DNA coming from the virus or from the vaccine, we now have the tools to do that. We can actually segregate those things with the genetics that we've, we've sequenced. So that, that traditionally has been a problem. This has been very hard to sort out long vax from long COVID because they have assays that look for spike protein, and the spike proteins are only differ by two, two prolines. So it's hard to discern, given most people who are vaccinated actually have, have had COVID, Unfortunately, um, that means you can't always tell whether it's long COVID or long vax unless you have an assay to split them. Now, some researchers have been using the presence of nucleocapsid to indicate that it's likely from the from the virus, not the vaccine. But there's some challenges there. Nucleocapsid doesn't seem to be in every tissue for some reason. And um, it'd be much easier if you could actually segregate this at, at the DNA level, because we can tell if both are there at the DNA level, whether you have the virus and the vaccine. Uh, and uh, we can actually identify which vaccine is present when you start working with the DNA. They, they all have different components. The Pfizer one has the SV40 components, Moderna doesn't. Both Moderna and Pfizer have an origin of replication uh, that we target, and then the Janssen one only has the spike. So we can actually discern whether it's Janssen, Pfizer, or Moderna just from uh, a quantitative PCR assay. Um, so that might help pathologists try to pin this down. Uh, are you suffering from the vaccine or are you suffering from, from long COVID? Uh, we haven't had good tools to do that. And I think as a result of that, everyone's bucketing things as long COVID when it's probably, the, it's probably long vax. So you can do that, but you're suggesting that you could also use the same tech now to see if some of this is making it into any germlines. Yes. 
Well, so germline's a little bit difficult to do with oocytes, but with sperm, you know, that's a hell of a lot more disposable. People can test that. Um, and so that's that's one area that a few researchers have contacted us about is uh, you can you can go screening that to see if there's any presence of this uh, if this is in there. Um, stem cells is another area people want to look at. Um, I'll have to defer to other professionals who work with those and how to actually harvest stem cells and, and, and look for them and, and probably pull them pull them out of blood if they can. Um, but those um, those would be some of the, the first places I think people will look. The other areas uh, people have brought up is um, there are is a growing interest in people not being transfused with vaccinated blood. Uh, so the the blood banks may need to be looking for this. And the fertility clinics I know of many people who've been trying to conceive and they're they're afraid of getting any uh, any uh, donor material that may in fact be vaccinated. There's just so many unknowns. It would be so incredibly helpful if, you know, these uh, pharma companies that made these things just open the books, right? Right. Warp speed is uh, uh, really did a dent in the confidence that I think the American public has in the healthcare system because it allowed for uh, people to rush through medicine under mandates. Um, and it doesn't seem like it was justified in retrospect. Uh, so we have created a moral hazard in this pandemic where we have set the precedent that under emergency circumstances, we can bypass all manufacturing guidelines. Uh, and what that means to a pharmaceutical company is it will soon be cheaper to manufacture an emergency than it will be to manufacture a drug. And they'll continue just to manufacture emergencies instead of manufacturing good drugs. So I, I think it's very important that we take stock of what occurred uh, and that we take a look at the, the regulatory oversight, because certainly there seems to be some capture going on. We, we, can't, uh, we can't make sense of what the regulatory agents are rubber stamping right now. None of this makes any sense, given what the adverse event rate that we've seen on this vaccine compared to previous ones is, uh, is night and day. So something is off the rails, uh, and these liability waivers that we have in place uh, aren't are never going to re redirect this and correct the problem that we have we, we've set forward with. Well, so what do you make of the fact you mentioned that uh, uh, John Ioannidis said, you know, we would never do this for the flu, except from what I understand, we are actually setting up to do this for the flu as we speak. Uh, how, what do you make of that? I think that speaks to the, the precedent that we set during the pandemic. Now, the pharmaceutical companies have seen a signal. The signal is you can get $100 billion if you can amplify the fear in the public's mind over a respiratory pandemic, uh, such that you can get politicians on board to then mandate these things into children, into schools, into uh, to, uh, for, for employment. So I think all of them are lining up, looking at RSV and flu as if they're the next uh, next pandemic that they can scrape $100 billion off of the table with. Uh, and we didn't do this before with the flu, clearly. Uh, but now it's suddenly being considered one of these targets for these mRNA platforms. So I, I think it's it's set a, a really horrible precedent that is going to create uh, you know, a central control mandated medicine where the, you no longer have a, a physician-patient relationship. You have a physician-politician relationship. The human cost of the last three years is just, I mean, it's in, incalculable. It, it is calculable. People are trying to do that, actually. But, but uh, the scope of it is still unknown. Right, right. I mean, I can only imagine the third world has been crushed by this more than we know. There's no one, no one paying attention to the poor, and the poor got probably got wrecked by the lockdowns. 
starvation uh, was reported by many of the um, many of the charities that that overlook what goes on in third world countries. There's very much a laptop class oblivion going on, right? We've got people who are thinking we can lock down the economy and they can just order their Starbucks online and have it delivered do with DoorDash, not recognizing that mandating vaccines probably knocked a tremendous number of people out of the workforce that may never get back to it. And that in the process of all of these lockdowns, we starved third world countries because we had all types of supply chain issues. Um, so there is an ethos going on that is really one, uh, sadly, of, of privilege. Uh, that thinks that this is uh, that lockdowns are are, are not and have no have no consequences of this. So uh, I, I agree with you that the, I don't think we're going to know the cost of this for decades. Uh, but um, you know, I, I, you know, Jay, Jay Bhattacharya I think is is quite grounded on this. That he's uh, he he views these things with that type of um, that type of foresight uh, and and knows for a reason. We never had these types of pandemic responses uh, in the public health literature before. These were all things that were considered crazy to do, but somehow they became uh, in vogue during the pandemic. So how have the relevant regulatory agencies responded to your findings, the work that you have done? Oh, complete crickets. Uh, so we did present this to the FDA. We got about a four minute slot there at the last Burback meeting. They quickly moved on to discussing the next variant they should chase with another vaccine that will be obsolete by the time the virus uh, mutates. Um, so they're they're they got they're obsessed with XB whatever XB 1.5 I think is their next variant that they're trying to build another vaccine for that won't work probably wreck people's immune systems and be late to the party. Um, uh, so I, I, we've heard a, a little bit back and forth from. Uh, Health Canada on this. Um, they've acknowledged that there's DNA in the vaccine. They know about this, but they, they don't think it's a concern because they've been told it's under the limit, but it's not clear that they've actually tested themselves or if they're just taking what Pfizer tells them is, is, uh, is the case. I think that's an important point is a lot of these regulators that are overlooking this are being given data generated by the manufacturers and just assuming it's true. They're not actually testing it themselves. Um, and a lot of that testing capacity to the extent that they had it at the FDA uh, wasn't occurring necessarily during the pandemic because most people were working from home uh, at those agencies and you can't exactly test these things from home. So I think they went on faith that a lot of these manufacturers were giving them um, were giving them true information and there's not really the historical precedence to believe that should be the case given the, the prior fines that have been handed out to some of these companies. So. Um, there's um, there, there's there's challenges there. There there is um, an ongoing lawsuit in um, in Australia with the TGA uh, because the Australia has different guidelines on what constitutes gene therapy, and it looks like these vaccines may in fact fall under that category, uh, given the fact that there's DNA in them and they're using LNPs, and we now know that some of the DNA in there has been used and, and documented as a gene therapy tool. So. Um, that, that we don't know where that's going to go, but um, hopefully that will have some progress in, uh, in in Australia. So, you know, as we finish up, you know, in the academic sphere, in the research sphere, um, are you seeing uh, a change in perception around what these products are, what we really know about them, what is certain, um, anything like that? Uh, it's a good question. So. Um, I think when we first put data out, we put it on a preprint server and uh, we had a lot of stones thrown at us saying it was irresponsible to put this type of scary material out about the vaccines without it being through peer review. But we've all seen what happened to peer review through the course of the pandemic. It became very much a 
uh, a church of the science TM, if you will. Um, everything that's the the narrative approved stuff would get through peer review. Anything that contradicted it would get uh, would get rejected. So um, we're not very confident that that process would treat our paper very favorably. So uh, more importantly, is does it reproduce itself? Half the papers that get peer reviewed don't reproduce themselves. Um, and so what's happened since we've put out our, our preprint? is two other labs have verified the work. Uh, Dr. Sin Lee at, at Milford Molecular Diagnostics has verified this, this work. He did it with Sanger, Sanger sequencing. I think you're familiar with Sanger sequencing. You've run some in your lifetime. So uh, it's a gold standard and uh, that's great work because we hadn't run Sanger and that was a good way to complement the data set that we put forward. Um, he also managed to find a 363 base pair amplicon in there that he sequenced. And that's relevant because some of the uh, the regulations out there, I should say guidelines they have on how much DNA can get be in a vaccine, some of them speak to it being larger than 200 bases as, as being pertinent. I don't necessarily agree with that cutoff, but that's what's in some of the some of the rules. But he found stuff that's bigger. We've also since done this Oxford nanopore sequencing stuff and find that the average is bigger than that size as well. And there's even some 3,000 base pair pieces in there. And another gentleman down at University of South Carolina, Dr. David, uh, uh, I'm sorry, Dr. Philip Buckholz, has done a lot of work on this. He replicated our PCR on his own vials. Now his vials were important to this equation because the ones that we were sent were sent anonymously and we couldn't vouch for the chain of custody other than that they had tamper evident vials on them and there was no tampering, but we didn't know who sent them to us. He got them directly from a pharmacy that he had direct cold chain um, connection to. And uh, so he could verify that these things were not adulterated in any way, and he sequenced directly out of those vials. And uh, he's now since run quantitative PCR. He's got numbers that are right in the line. He's got numbers that are around 10 nanograms with his vials. They're different lots. Um, but he's also done some Oxford nanopore sequencing on them and uh, has some understanding of the fragment lengths that are, that are in there. And he's getting complete coverage over the vaccine that, that we put public. So there's now lots of evidence that the work that we put public in a preprint has been replicated in other labs. And I think that has changed people's opinion on this. Um, uh, you know, I, maybe I'll forward your audience to a, a great write-up on this. this is from Keith Robeson, who's run like a 20-year genomics blog uh, known as Omics Omics. And I think he works at Ginkgo, who, who knows how to make mRNA for some of these companies. I think they may have a contract with Moderna to make some of these mRNAs. Um, they have a large government grant for making mRNAs. But uh, anyway, he's a very astute bioinformatics person. And he, out of the gate, looked at our data and was like, all right, this isn't fake. These guys have something here. We should take it seriously. As much as Keith and I have differed over our positions on the pandemic, uh, it was a very healthy discourse to have someone probably on the opposite side of this table, looking at our data saying, yeah, this is this is real. Um, and then he was one of the first people to actually come out and say that, which I'm, uh, I'm impressed by. Uh, since then, others have jumped in and actually picked up pipettes. Um, and now what we're starting to see is many other cancer researchers are, are speaking up, saying, yeah, this is something we have to look at. We really do need to sequence um, some of these patients to understand what the integration frequencies are. Um, I'll forward you some links to um, some other cancer researchers. Wafik uh, is one that has spoken up about this, who's at Brown. Um, he's got probably 90,000 citations to his name, is well-respected in the cancer field, and he's he's not he's not discounting it. He's saying, yes, this is probably a low-frequency event, but we should know the frequency, and we have the tools to measure it, so why aren't we doing it? And I think that's a very sound and, and, and rational approach. Well, you know, seeing the study replicated in two, at least two separate labs is, is certainly a very strong indicator. Of its of its validity, um, something I think much more valuable than peer review at this point, as as you suggested. Obviously, the preprint is uh, is has been polished up a little bit more than what we put on Substacks, but the preprint was put out I think back in April, 
And a lot more data has come out since then from our lab and other labs that you'll see that hasn't quite graduated to that level of, of curation, if you will. Well, something we did talk about offline before is this idea of basically people that are choosing to attack studies very often will er erect straw men situations and attack those, right? Instead, like, for example, uh, that it's monkey virus and not a uh, monkey virus promoter sequence or something like that. And then, you know, so you, you'll get all this time. No, there's no monkey virus, none at all. And you miss the whole point. So I just wanted to get you to talk about that briefly before we actually finish, because I actually think it's really important. I think it's a it's a clever tactic by um, perhaps the pharmaceutical industry. So yes, in the case of of the work that we put forward, instantly people started to say there's no SV40 virus in the vaccines, which we never stated inside of our paper. We said there was an SV40 promoter and, and some of the components. We're very clear about that, but it it quickly got associated with. Um, uh, these guys are claiming there's something there that isn't there. And then everyone missed the point that, no, there's components of SV40 that are actually uh, quite functional that we need to be concerned about that are in these vaccines because they've been studied as being gene therapy tools by David Dean and others. So um, they're, they're, they're perhaps not as frightening as what happened in the polio vaccine, which may have some people have attributed to causing some cancers in the past. Um, it's still a controversy in that field, but there there's still p things that we need to know about. So I think I, I've seen that happen multiple times. Um, when we did some work uh, critiquing some of the earliest quantitative PCR kits that came to market, the Corman Drossen ones were never had internal controls and didn't really understand what CT score they needed. They never sequence validated the, all the amplicons they used, you know, just kind of things you would want to see happen before you rush a test out to market to define a pandemic. Um, they rushed it through peer review in like 24 hours. When we put all this together and said, hey, wait a minute, we, we, PCR can do better than this. We're not anti-PCR people. I, I do PCR every day. I just think if you're going to if you're going to define a pandemic on a on a test where you don't know the CT score of it, you could overcall the pandemic and create one of these false pandemics, which I think is actually kind of what happened. Um, they instantly associate us with a bunch of people who deny viruses exist, and uh, and they 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 just they try to. They try to flood the zone with a lot of, um, uh, you know, odd media. And um, when we put out this first paper back in, in April, you'll see there's a big spike in the news about graphene oxide. So when we were saying, hey, there's some contaminants in, in, in the vaccines, the suddenly there's all this stuff on Twitter about graphene oxide to try and distract people from the fact that, that no, the, the DNA is the thing we're concerned about. I don't, I don't actually subscribe to the, the, the graphene oxide. I don't think has been really nailed yet. And uh, I don't know if it ever will be based on um, what I've seen. So uh, there does seem to be a tendency for them to either erect straw man or flood the zone with, with alternate information so that uh, an average person is just confused on what to believe because there's a mixture of messages coming through the, uh, the, the media that are meant to drown out the real signal. Well, Kevin, I really appreciate you working with me here to try to cut through the noise, so to speak. Such a pleasure to have had you on, this time for real. Thank you. Yes, appreciate it as well. Thank you all for joining Kevin McKernan and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kellek. We reached out to Pfizer, but they did not immediately respond to our request for comment. Hey, everyone. If you enjoyed that last episode, you should check out our new documentary, The Unseen Crisis vaccine stories you were never told. You can find it at unseencrisis.com.